it had evaluation, it had celebration, it had uh, failure, but it had, um, even in failure, there was a celebration because the risks had been taken. Now, we may disagree on this a little bit. Calling the next grand bargain the great leap sideways. This is the podcast from hell. Grand bargain. Decolonizing aid. 26 Humanitarian action takes place at the edge of chaos. And to find the right answers, we need smart, honest conversations. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to Humanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. Throughout my career, I have been privileged to have mentors helping me understand how to do better. Some people would argue that that is because I was greatly in need of mentoring. I choose to believe that I simply was lucky. Among all my mentors, Stephen Webster has a special place for me. I've worked for years with Steve on training courses, and I could spend five minutes detailing the things Steve has spent his career doing. But that would somehow be missing the point. Instead, what I'd like to do is play a little clip from a voicemail my wife received from a colleague of mine at ACAPS who met Steve for a couple of minutes. And this shows you the impression Steve makes on people. I met his old friend. Panangi, the man was so sweet. That man was so sweet. He really touched me. I didn't even get his name, but he touched my heart. I will think about him for a few days. The conversation starts a bit abruptly, but that's my fault. I simply forgot to turn on the recording, so we lost the first 10 minutes and had to redo part of it. And you will hear Steve, uh, of course, teasing me with that in the beginning. As always, if you like the conversation, please uh, share it out on social media, make some noise. Recommend the show to colleagues and friends, but most importantly, enjoy the conversation. Steve Webster, welcome to True Humanitarian. <laughs> yes. Yes, thank you, Lars Peter. You know, technology is our friend, but it so often leaves us, leaves us on the side. It's a double-edged sword, for yes, sure. it is indeed. Among the, the thousands of disaster managers you have met over your career, who are the best ones? Why are they the best ones? Well, I would have to say the best ones are the most other-regarding individuals and the uh, and people who are driven by the notion that mercy triumphs because mercy is the human quality which uh, elevates the human condition. And uh, I think if you're motivated by an appreciation of the assets that people have rather than their deficits and if you are able to work in that direction uh, you will be successful as a professional you will have good relationships uh, relationships being the key I think to successful program outcomes uh, and uh, you will uh, always have a goal in mind which is elevates which elevates <coughs> the beneficiary or the client or the you know, whatever word we use to describe the people that we're working with. And the sense of, well, I think at the end of the day, it's love directed. Love is a, you know, a word that gets tossed around and 
and abused in a lot of different ways. But to my mind, love is a is a driving force that values the individual uh, and the individual's right to a, a, a good life. It's a beautiful answer. It can also seem like a somehow naive answer when you look at the sort of institutions we work in where love doesn't seem to be top of the agenda. Well, I have the benefit of being retired now so that I don't have to be bothered by um, the agendas of the people who are climbing over each other. Uh, you know, there was a, a uh, Russian uh, an, uh, anthropologist named Kropotkin who wrote a book called Mutual Aid at the Turn of the Century, and he wrote it in opposition to the Darwinian uh, survival of the fittest approach. And you know, they were, they were, he was critiquing the notion that people are climbing over each other to advance themselves, and which I think is what looks what the institutions look like. But he pointed out that the species which survived most successfully were the ones that practiced mutual aid, and that was a, 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 an important book to me when I first encountered it. Um, you know, the the gains of the uh, the short-term gains of uh, promotion and um, uh, increased responsibility in the long run become rather meaningless. Uh, the relationships that are based on uh, on trust and uh, come back to value time and time and time and time again. I noticed in my life that the relationships that I built with, with other professionals were, they were sincere and authentic they benefited. When I got to Iraq, uh, you know, the person who was in charge of the telephones was someone who, with whom I had built a relationship a long time ago. And it, it, it paid off to have a relationship. If I had been, you know, uh, abusive to the person or if I had, you know, pushed myself forward over them, I don't think I would have received the same sort of support. And the tenser the situation got, the more support I got. So I, I, I think relationship that's, that, that was love-driven was critical to my safety, let alone my production. What do you think we can do to foster more love, to foster more of these relationships that, that you describe that, that are so functional, both for the outcome, for safety, in, in so many ways? What can we do as, as, as practitioners? Yeah, I wish I, I wish there was an easy answer to that, and I don't think there is. I think, to, to my mind, modeling is the most, uh, you know, one of the most successful forms of leadership. Uh, you know, if you can model the sort of behaviors that you are looking for, then you can encourage that in individuals that are working for you. If you can establish uh, promotion and retention systems which value the ability to make relationships, then that will promote itself. If you are only able to value uh, the acquisition of, of resources or uh, the acquisition of power or territory, then I don't think uh, that you can be... I don't think you can establish organizations that are driven by this uh, point of view. But let, I, let me caution this by saying that I'm not sure institutions as vehicles have the capacity to be driven like this. I think it happens with individuals within institutions, but I, I think institutions mostly disappoint because their survival needs become almost ego, egomaniacal, more so than the individuals, because once the institution establishes itself, 
its major purpose is to is to reproduce and and colonize and and uh, that's not necessarily the case for the individuals, but it is case it is seems to be the case for the organizations. Yeah, I think when I think of what you have taught me, the the thing that always stands out is opening every training course with a slide of a toolbox saying under construction, warning, high tolerance for ambiguity ahead, or yeah. it's, it's required ahead, right? And and I guess the sort of institutions we have don't deal too well with ambiguity. No, that's in fact ambiguity is something that's to be you know, driven out of, the, if possible, to be gotten rid of because ambiguity is allows for too much uh, self control and self-innovation. I mean, organizations want, want uh, that's why the training programs, you know, specify certain behaviors because they're, they're afraid of the behaviors that may come about if they don't specify certain behaviors. And I mean, it is, it's, it's true that, the, that if you don't specify, you have the capacity for great quality and for dismal uh, perspectives or dismal outcomes as well. Uh, I, I can't remember whether we had talked about this in the previous discussion, but I had talked to this, uh, uh, these international scholars at the University of Wisconsin, and there had been a, a diplomat who had spoken bef- the week before or two weeks before, and uh, she had painted a very negative picture of the humanitarian environment, uh, particularly one that was you know, driven by grant-making and by outcome achievements and so on and so forth. And uh, the students were were depressed at her after her presentation because there they didn't seem to be any there there you know in terms of really uh, affirming what their 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 goals were were altruistic their motivations were altruistic they were students and then to be faced with this dark atmosphere of the reality of the inner organizational environment and uh, the, I several of them stayed and talked after my conversation. Because they wanted to know where my optimism came from, and I said, "Well, I and I said it's because my objectives are to have relationships with people, not with institutions. The institutions I've worked with have always disappointed me, but the people that I've worked with, not that there aren't people who have disappointed me, but I mean, out of in every place I go into, I find people who have." Uh, Qualities which are value, which which are valuable, build trust and build relationship, and are long term, uh, long term satisfi- satisfying, and uh, and productive. I'm not being very articulate here, but I think you know it's a it, it is a it's a uh, a synergy is a tiresome tired word, but there is an energy that comes from unity. When people act as one, or who, or when they are working together, that that energy is always victorious. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think once you see a high-performing team that really spins you, you can almost hear it hum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you and you only experience that in life, you know, if you're lucky, you experience that a half a dozen times over your work life. But when you experience it, you know that that's the that's what we should be seeking. Yeah, and so I, I totally get that. I get we have institutions that are basically bureaucracies that are trying to stamp out any ambiguity. They're working highly ambiguous settings, so they don't work. It becomes very clunky. And then we have these uh, individuals uh, trying to make uh, their way and survive in this environment, most of them highly committed, very smart people. 
but in almost soul-crunching organizations, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, the million-dollar question, Steve, is can you create an institutional environment that's more conducive than what we have? I think you can. So how? I think you can do it by, um, by setting, setting a, a set of values which, are, which you adhere to and are walk the talk on about what the organization stands for. I was very impressed with, the, with ACAP's uh, values that I saw on the wall when I came in. Before I met anybody, I saw the, uh, I saw the values, and they, they were unique. Not, not the words were not unique. I've seen all the words before, but I haven't seen them uh, put together. I mean, they recognized the, the need for excellence. They recognized the need for self uh, self control. They recognized the need for individual achievement. They recognized the, the, the powers of diversity. <clears throat> they were they were anti institutional in the sense that they valued individual achievement. But they were also recognized that the that people here were working as a collective. So I don't know the people who work at, at ACAPS. I can't tell whether they are a happy family of unitary achievers. But I can say that an organization that's driven by a set of values that are sincere and authentic and which are ma- modeled by senior management and, by, and, and perpetuated throughout the organization provides a, a system of trustworthy predictability which allows people to risk because if they are if they are certain that their risk taking uh, will not be um, will not lead them down a wrong path then they're willing to to achieve excellence at the at the expense of failure but they recognize that failure is a part of achieving excellence yeah, psychological safety as the key determinant in whether a team is, is, is performing or not. I think, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Now, we may or may not live up to those values. I'd like well, to I'm think sure that you don't live up to them no, you know, all I mean, the time, on a, of course not. Yeah. On a good day, we might uh, get close, right? On a bad day, definitely not. But where have you seen an organization that, where you thought, yeah, th- this is actually how things should work? Uh, well, I worked in a... In a uh, <clears throat> the very first disaster that I ever worked on was the, was the as the recovery coordinator for a place that had been destroyed by tornadoes. I thought it was the Hindenburg. <laughs> to to have an F five uh, tornado with a two hundred fifty mile an hour winds that just acted like a vacuum cleaner in this town, and the uh, team that, of people that were that were in charge of it were included the the town clerk the president of the, of the uh, council, the head of the Mennonite Disaster Committee, uh, myself, and an attorney. And we had a, a seamless vision of what, the ta- what, we, what we were going to rebuild, and it was a... People knew ahead of time what it was that you needed. I mean, there was an anticipation and there was a, it had the it had evaluation it had celebration it had uh, failure but it had um, even in failure there was a celebration because the risks had been taken uh, i think it respected people's uh shortcomings and allowed them to be it um it was it was continuously reinforcing of what people's needs were 
and um, the outcomes were outstanding. You know, the the, uh, the recovery process was uh, was was a, a model of recovery. I also think uh, I I don't. My daughter runs an organization, and uh, I'd like to think that her orientation towards management is was you know somehow driven in her family. But her she has a team that is that works like this. And I think it's because she values them as individuals. She gives them the space to do the work that they need to do. She's clear about what the objectives are. She doesn't expect them to perform in areas that they are not interested in or competent in. Uh, and she supports them. I mean, a good leader asks the, says to the employee, how can I help you get do your job better? Doesn't say, here's how I want you to do your job so my job looks better. They are—they are. It's a corny word, servant leadership. But it's—if you have—if you're lucky enough to work in an organization that's driven by servant leaders, then you are working in an organization that, where your achievement and satisfaction and and happiness is is the principal objective of the uh, supervisor. To take the conversation in a different direction, we've we talk a lot about decolonizing. I guess people like us, old white men, you're significantly older than I am, of course, Steve, but but I know we, we both ticked those boxes. When you started out, I guess that was 70-80% of the people you would find in a training course or in an organization. Yeah, and I think about the people who were who were the leaders in the disaster field. They were all old white guys who uh, held up a finger to see which way the snow, the wind was blowing, and made a decision. Then, how far have we gotten in terms of changing that, and and what what has changed? Well, uh, there has certainly been an emphasis to put to have things be more evidence based, uh, rather than relying on the individual's experience, the experience of the individual to call the shots. There's a much greater emphasis on evidence based decision making. So decision making has been, I think, removed from uh, the gurus and is more decentralized in the organization. Probably there's more, you know, line flow, low, work control at the, uh, at the boundaries, which I think is, um, especially in the, in the inter-organizational environment that we have now, which is so complex with so many organizations, if you don't have boundary management, uh, you're, you're, you'll never get anything done. So I think there's more. There's a lot more decisions made at, at the boundaries, and that that involves then a lot of a uh, lot more people. We I, we have much more distributed leadership models going on than, than we have you know in, investment in just one individual who calls all the shots. And I think actually when you run across an organization where one person is in charge of everything, that person is usually held up to ridicule and and is usually not liked by their employees because they. You can't be that person without making enemies. Uh, so I, I, certainly there is a, a much greater diversity. Now, whether this has achieved superior outcomes, I can't say. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, in our business, uh, the interventions of the exogenous forces are only supplemental supplemental to the endogenous uh, uh, supports because uh, the neighbors helping neighbors I mean they have to live with the people after the disaster goes away 
And uh, to the extent that those relationships are strong and productive, they already have solved a lot of the problems before the inter interveners get in. I mean, we, I, I, th I think, again, of this first uh, first disaster, you know, and I don't mean this in, to be critical of the Red Cross in any, in any sense, but the disaster hit, and the, the church ladies from the Lutheran churches put up a feeding kitchen. The, the Red Cross came in after, t you know, it was there a week after the, after the disaster hit. They took over the kitchen and ran it, for two or three weeks, uh, four weeks, five weeks, I don't recall how far. Then they pulled out and the Lutheran ladies took it back over again and ran it. And, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> and then they, and when we had to move out of the town garage because winter was coming, and we went to the Mason Hall and we said, uh, we said the women said, well, we're not going to, we're not going to serve meals like we did before. And then one woman said, well, we should have coffee for the for people when they're going to work. And then somebody else said, well, yeah, but if we're going to have coffee, we probably could have a donut. But we're not going to serve meals. And somebody else said, well, you know, we could have a bowl of soup for people. And and all of a sudden, they were back, you know, and they had reestablished uh, their their own orientation, the whole thing that they had were, were promised that they weren't going to do. I mean, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know? So I think we can all see the downside to, let's call them the cowboys, right, that... Uh, larger-than-life character who goes out, smells the wind, and then just saves everybody. At the same time, being that empowered in a situation that is that chaotic has its benefits, That and, and some people were able to, able to really move mountains in situations like that. So wasn't there an upside to also having that, that holistic approach, in a sense, that they had? Am I... I think you're. I think you're right. Uh, and, and with with this caveat, um, the people who became who became the cowboys became addicted to the emergency environment as a place to work. And once they were addicted, once they became addicted, then their decisions were being driven by their addiction more than their. Um, they were still vested in their experience. And justifying their actions based on their experience, but their addiction was what was actually driving their decision making, and the need to continue to to satisfy that addiction caused uh, caused uh, excesses in areas that uh, didn't need to have excesses in them, and provision of services that were unnecessary, and so and so forth. So I think that the attempts to codify the activities of the Cowboys, so to speak, was um, is laudable because people were trying to de deconstruct what it was that you know. In those days, the we didn't have wild assessments. I mean, the person who was in charge of the disaster had said, "I think this is what the disaster is, and this is what the magnitude of it is, and this is the services that we need." Now, in the first place, in, in the first place, there weren't very many providers, so it was a lot easier to work with a much fewer set of providers. It was a closer, tight-knit network. Um, but now there are so many interveners in, in, uh, in any disaster situation that trying to coordinate all of that is like, you know, like herding cats. So there has to be standard operating procedures, which um, are the mandates, which are the mandates of the organizations and which circumscribe the behaviors of the individual. So your capacity to be free to innovate is, is not there anymore. This has resulted then in a, 
along with the evidence-based practice and the need for measurement, has caused a lot of, of uh, effort to be invested in detailing the, the uh, skills and competencies which are necessary. So, I mean, everything is competency-based. Uh, I mean, I, you, you, things, are not, things are not value-driven so much anymore as they are competency-based driven. And uh, I was just uh, at, at uh, a meeting at, the, uh, at lunchtime, and they, took, uh, they had turned the training program, which they were training people to be in, the, in uh, to do uh, disaster management work. And they had 27 different training programs and 27 different competencies, which they had experienced, uh, which they wanted people to, to be able to know how to do. Well, uh, you know, that, remind, that caused a big bell to go off in my mind because I thought, we have come full circle in the training program from disaster, from Taylorism and scientific management, which everybody you know hated, uh, you know, when, which became in, in, uh, uh, frowned upon in the '60s because we had the uh, Mayo uh, the Mayo School and we had the Hawthorne effect, and we had, and in that period of time, we recognized that if that individuals given power shined and produced things and we valued our investments of training and such were to capacitate the individual to be responsive and innovative and uh, and, and leadership as individuals we've come full circle around now and we've, we that's now out and we are reestablishing a, a more technology driven scientific management but still the same thing that says if you practice these few behaviors or this collection of behaviors you'll have this type of outcome and it will be measured and uh, that's just Taylorism at a, you know, at a higher level and with more computers and technology, but it still looks a lot like Taylorism to me. It would be very unattractive to me to work in that environment where I had to have 27 competencies that I was judged on. I mean, I wanted to work autonomy and diversity were my career goals, and uh, I would not have achieved that under the circumstances. Yeah, I had a boss who used to say they took human out of the human resource department. <laughs> yeah, Now right. it's just the resource yes, department. Right. Yeah. So where does this leave us, Steve? I think the biggest message I hear from you is the importance of these individuals who are actually driven by, who are purpose-driven, uh, value-driven, driven by love, and the relationship that these people can enter into with other people. That That is really where some of the best skilled disaster managers come from. That That is... I think where we started our conversation. I think that that I want to be hopeful enough to to su suppose that this exists in situ, that on the ground in the disaster, at the field level, despite what goes on at headquarters and in the decision making meetings and in in in, in the big uh, you know uh, meetings with the resident coordinator and the and the ministries and such where all the posturing is taking place, that actually at the field level, people are still trusting each other and making things work, even though uh, th that there are a lot of institutional barriers to making it work. So when I meet individual people who are working in the field and I say, what are you liking? They're saying, oh, the people I work with is what you know what drives me i i love the people i work with we were we were a team we sacrificed together we suffered together but we were we had a similar vision 
we shared that vision with each other and we experienced a, a level of joy that despite the hardships we faced there was a joy a level of joy there now that's what you seek in a working environment and if that's there that it's impossible to have that have that as a team experience and not have that wash through the people that you're working with because the the outcomes that come from teams that are that are having that much trust going on are just naturally going to value the assets of the people that they are working with and providing services to them that they need rather than the services that they're intended to give. If I have a, a, a platform that I stand on, it's that, and I learned it in the disability field because my son, my oldest child had uh, developmental disabilities. We need to devise systems that support people as individuals rather than trying to slot people into the systems that have been created. Uh, because we need to see what works for people, what their assets are, what they're good at, wh what works for them. If, if they're a disaster survivor, we need to look at their assets, not their deficits, and figure out how to put those things together and build a supportive service around them. It works for countries, it works for teams, it works for individuals. When we go in with a program and say, uh, here's what we offer, have, have this, well, people will take what we offer them because they don't have any, they will do something with it, they'll throw it away or they'll sell it or they'll do something with it but if we go and we say how can we build let's take a look at what you've got and and build that with then then you're going to have interventions i i'm sorry to take this down the long road but i worked in the uh tana river delta in uh, in kenya and the people lived on in houses that were on the ground and they kept their livestock in the center of the of the community and it was, had been a drought area for a long time. Well, under climate change, they now were getting flooding. And the flooding flooded, you know, all the refuse of the cows went right into the huts. Well, I was there with a group that was providing plastic sheeting and uh, jerry cans and things. And, and it was so obvious that jerry cans and plastic sheeting were a, a waste of time. And I said to the village chief, I said, would you be willing to... Uh, stay in a messy situation for a little while if we could put your huts on stilts. And the chief said, certainly I would do that. I couldn't get the organization to change its orientation to shift away from what it was doing. So all it did was perpetuate the situation that was already there. If I had been, if I'd had more energy, time, assets, uh, power, I guess, I could have changed the way the intervention went. But uh, to just to, to say, these are the services we provide, take them or leave them, that was, that's, 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 it makes assessment to be in your cases, in your situation, a waste of time. They don't need the assessment. You just go and take what you're going to give them in the first place and, uh, and say, here's what we've got, use it or lose, you know, use it or lose it, like it or take the highway. But if we can if we can individualize these things, we'd be, we'd be much more successful in promoting long-term resiliency. I can't think of a better place to end this conversation. Steve, thank you for coming on True Humanitarian, and thank you for all of the things you have done over the years for me, for the whole 
disaster management community. It, uh, it's been a pleasure to work with you. Lars Peter, it's a pleasure to see to be. It's, it, it, I have been away from the field for several years now, and it's a remarkably different place than where I worked. But uh, it's nice to see the people I've met with this week have all still got the same bug and they're driven in the same way and that's that's very uh hope providing freedom to be for people to choose their path in life and dream souls of men beyond what you see stages are different for each who will lead cycles of outsiders that get fat checks fly in fly out of places with slums and jets ask better questions pick apart educate and no one is safe we're here to build and debate we are we are searching for more Open up your mind beyond rich or poor For the truth You've been warned Humanitarian